Amen? Go ahead and be seated. Man, I love saying that. <laughs> Welcome to the room. I'm s- Woo! I am so lonely without you guys here on Sundays. Like an empty room is the worst. I'm so grateful for this and for the live stream and the people at home. I'm grateful even so faithful to that. But man, it's just the best when we're here uh, together. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we can get into God's Word together. That's what we're going to do now. So uh, Jonah chapter 4 is where we are. We're going to wrap up uh, this little series called The God of Second Chances, and we've been looking at the relentless mercy of God in our lives over these four weeks. And so we're going we're gonna to wrap this up here with a message um, titled, When I Complain Bitterly, uh, God Reaches Out. And um, little-known apocryphal fact, everybody tracking with me so far? Little-known apocryphal fact. Tim Horton founded his famous coffee shop as a place for people to gather and complain at. Uh, This is your first week back, and this is the best you can do at my jokes? Like, just a little, (laughs) isn't he so funny? (laughs) Come on, guys, help me out here. We complain about everything. Uh, We complain about the weather, no matter which season it is. We complain about uh, the weather. We complain about the economy. We complain about the government. No matter what party it is, we complain. Uh, We complain about neighbors, the boss, in-laws. We complain about the deplorable condition of the roads in our city, and then we complain when the city closes them to repair them. (laughs) We complain about all of it. We complain about all aspects of the pandemic, and we complain about the gypsy moth caterpillar. But that one's okay. It's terrible. He's terrible. Um, They're awful. They're destroying everything. But I don't want to talk about that. Jonah 4 is what I want to talk about, and Jonah 4 is a complaint session. It's Jonah sitting at the Tim Hortons outside of Nineveh with some other guy who showed up there without anybody, and the two of them are just talking table to table about how awful things are. Jonah is complaining, weirdly, his complaint is this, how merciful God is. His complaint is about how merciful God is. The prophet simply can't get his head around what God did for the Ninevites at the end of chapter 3 and sparing them his judgment. And so let's ask ourselves this question as we look at Jonah 4. When God doesn't do things the way I think he should, do I complain? When God doesn't do things the way I think he should, do I complain? And there are some questions that that we should really ask ourselves to make sure that we're not reacting in the way that Jonah did. So let me read the chapter here, and we'll get right into it. This is Jonah 4. Uh, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and the it there is the fact that God relented from judging Nineveh. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this... What I said when I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. 
And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's an interesting way for this book to come to an end. It's somewhat open-ended, and we don't see Jonah's response. But what we want to see in this chapter is when God does not do things the way I think He should, I must ask myself five questions. These five questions, starting with this one, why am I so upset with what He's doing? This is a check-your-motives moment. This is a check-your-heart to see where you're at. Because Jonah went to Nineveh, he preached the messages God had commanded him to do, he told them judgment was imminent, and then, this was the plot twist that we saw in chapter 3, the thing that no one saw coming was that Nineveh actually repented, and it was wholesale, and it was sincere repentance. In fact, If you go back to chapter 3 and just look at verse 10, when God saw what they did, when God saw their repentance, it says God relented. And so this, God knows the heart. God knows they're not just faking it. There's no way to fool God into thinking you've repented if you haven't really. God knew this was genuine repentance, and that's why he relented. Now, notice Jonah's reaction. That's what we read in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah, exceedingly displeased and angry. And in fact, the word angry here means furious. It's actually the root word comes from heat or fire or to burn. That's how he feels about God relenting to judge Nineveh. The same word is used in chapter 3, verse 9. You see it there with respect to God's feeling toward Nineveh before they repented. It said that God had fierce anger. And that's what Jonah's feeling. He's beside himself with rage over God's mercy to the Ninevites. Now, don't miss the irony of what's being said here. The same mercy that caused Jonah to rejoice in chapter 2 because God rescued him, that same mercy is now being applied to the Ninevites, but it's causing Jonah to rage and complain. I mean, Jonah's fine as long as he's the recipient of the mercy, but he's not so fine when it's someone receiving the mercy that Jonah deems is unworthy of it. 
Not that anyone's worthy of God's mercy. Am I right? Are any of us worthy of God's mercy? Now, this is, this is actually right here is where we find out what happened back in Jonah 1. Like, why did Jonah? God gives Jonah the command. The next thing we see is he's getting on a boat. There's no dialogue. There's no explanation about really why he's doing that. But we find out why right here. Why he fled to Tarshish instead of going to fulfill the mission. There was a conversation between him and God that we're not told about in chapter 1, but we find out here when he says in verse 2, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Remember that conversation we had before I went to Tarshish, before I got in the boat? You gave me this, this order, this command to go to Nineveh, and I didn't? He says, that's why. This is the reason why. I made haste to flee to Tarshish. The motive behind Jonah's furious response is his his embedded prejudice toward anyone who is not Israel. In fact, it would be safe to say that Jonah sees God's relenting as a serious betrayal of the covenant between God and Israel. And if Jonah asked himself these questions, he'd say, why am I so upset with what God is doing? It's because God isn't doing things the way I think He should. He isn't meeting my expectations. And in his prayer, back in chapter 2, verse 9, he he makes this amazing declaration of, of theology, understanding of what he believes when he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. So in other words, like it's God's prerogative to save whomever He saves, and He's the only one who can save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But now that stands in sharp contrast to what we see here from Jonah. Yet God is acting 100% in alignment with who He is and what He said in His stated Word. There's no surprise here. God's always had a heart for the world, the whole world, not just Israel. God still has a heart for the whole world, not just Christians, not just the church, not just the Western world. God has a heart for the world. John 3.16, the most well-known of all verses, says God so loved the world. Not just back then, now, God still loves the world. And when we get so self-focused as Jonah is here, we quickly lose our zeal. Preferring our own personal comfort, we quickly lose our zeal for the lost and for the mission because we think it's all about us. And that presses us to ask a question right now. How much do we care about the spiritually lost? Or are we too busy complaining about what God has or has not done for us? Let me ask it another way. How willing are you to have God upset and upend your life so that those who still have no clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ will hear and respond to that gospel. Does your heart break for those who are in peril of dying without Christ? John's gospel, Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd, and he's talking about the sheep. And of course, as as the disciples are hearing that, they're understanding the sheep is Israel. Israel, the sheep. It's an illustration throughout the entire Scripture. 
But then Jesus says this startling thing to them in John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. It isn't just about Israel, he's saying to his disciples in the first century. It isn't just about Israel. I have other sheep, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's saying, in that context of the first century, he's saying, there are Arabs and Africans, Asians and Caucasians, all of whom need to hear the gospel. All who don't know me yet. And he charged them, after his resurrection and before his ascension, he charged them, he said, I want you to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Everyone needs to hear this. I have sheep everywhere that need to be part of this sheepfold. And we can't be upset at any level with what God is doing in the world because it doesn't lead anywhere good. Everyone, listen, not everyone's going to accept the invitation, but everyone on planet earth is being invited to the party. Everyone. So that's question one. Let's look at a second one. Question two, what qualities of God do I need to remind myself of? The general principle here is defense, the, the best defense against wrong thinking is right thinking. The best weapon against false belief is right doctrine. We overcome sin by filling our hearts and minds with the Word of God. And the old illustration that many of you will know is that you, you know a forgery not by studying forgeries, you know a forgery by studying the authentic. The strongest disciples of Jesus Christ learn theology and they root their life in that theology, what is true about God and what He tells us in His Word. Now, now here's what Jonah says about God. I, I, I set that up in that way because Jonah rehearses some really great theology for us here. But this is part of his complaint, part of his argument against God, which is interesting, that he takes truth and uses it in this way. But he says in chapter 4, verse 2, the latter part there, he says, I knew this is also his reason why he went to Tarshish and didn't go to Nineveh. I knew, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful. I knew that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew you would re relent from disaster. Knew it. Now, Jonah knew this in terms of a principle. He understood this because he had been taught these things. He had been taught the Torah. He knew the stories of God's faithfulness to Israel. He, knew, he understood the promise of salvation. He understood the covenants. And he was also a prophet and had taught these things to others. In fact, he knew them so well in quoting this verse, he's actually quoting out of the narrative in Exodus about Moses. We referred to it last week. After Israel had sinned with the golden calf and God's going to wipe out the entire nation, Moses is pleading with God not to do it. And Moses is the first one to say what Jonah quotes here in verse 2. He's the one who says, God, I know you're gracious. I know you're merciful. I know you're slow to anger. I know you abound in steadfast love. I know you relent from disaster. And God, I'm, I'm knowing who you are, I'm pleading with you right now. Don't wipe out na the nation. That's the way Moses was praying it. But of course, Jonah's praying it in a different way. 
He's saying, I know you're like that. I know you spared Israel. I know you're inclined to forgive. But I don't want you to be that this time. I want you to follow through in destroying Nineveh. Now, before we get any further, let's even just look at what he's saying about the attributes of God. He says he's gracious. Five attributes here. He's gracious. That's God giving us what we don't deserve. God giving us what we don't deserve. We'll come back to these first two in a bit. He's merciful. God not giving us what we do deserve. Thirdly, slow to anger. In contrast to Jonah here, God is measured and God is reasonable. Fourthly, he's abounding in steadfast love. God keeps his word. God keeps his covenant. God keeps his promises. God exercises unlimited, unconditional love toward us. And fifth, he relents from disaster. Contrary to what most people think, God is not looking for ways to judge. He is not first a judge. God is looking for ways to love and to show us His grace and His mercy. The most obvious application as you look at those five attributes, the most obvious application of all five is in the gospel. It's in the cross. It's in the empty tomb. It's embodied in who Jesus Christ is. All five elements showing up in the mission that Jesus as the Savior fulfilled in this world. And so do you believe all of these things about God and how does that change the way you think about yourself and the way you think about others? If this is the default setting the primary things about God that we need to know and the primary ways that God operates in this world, then that's going to change things. And that's where Jonah was failing. He knew all of these things, but he didn't choose to apply them in the way that God intended. And we struggle here because any Christian can choose to set aside the things that he or she knows to be true. I've heard that a hundred times. I've read it in God's Word. I've heard it taught. I know it's true. But as Christians, we can so easily take that and set it aside so that we can indulge our flesh. So that we can do things our own way and pursue our own selfish thoughts and desires. And instead, we need to come back to the Word Remind ourselves, believe what we hear, stubbornly refuse to compromise who God is for any reason. Don't mishandle the Word of God for your own selfish purposes. Because when we do, there's a very real possibility that we then become afflicted in the way that Jonah is afflicted. Here's the third question. Am I descending into a dark place? It's so easy. When we start to believe the wrong thing or we set truth aside to pursue our own agenda, it's so easy to let that be one decision that's followed by another and then another, and then we're spiraling down further and further into darkness. Look at where Jonah found himself. In both verse 3 and verse 8, He says, Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to 
live. He's at the point of no longer having the will to live if this is the kind of thing that God is going to do. His wrong thinking had taken such a firm grip on him. In verse 5, he's having, again, speaking to the dark place that he's in, he's having a full-on personal pity party. The text tells us he went out of the city, he made this little hut for himself, wasn't even enough to really shade him, as we'll see. He sat under it in the shade that he was able to make for himself, and he waited to see. It literally says, now he already knows, God's already relented. Now he's going to wait and see what happens to this city. Hmm. Like he's waiting to see if God's going to change his mind, or if the Ninevites really didn't repent, and, and they're going to go back to their sinful ways, and then God's going to sweep in and destroy the city the way he thinks he should. He's in such a dark place that he's, listen how bad this is, he's hoping God is going to judge them. It's a bit disturbing. In fact, the whole thing smacks of kind of a bargain with God. You know what, God? You know what, God? If you're not going to kill them, kill me. And he's testing God to see if God will kill him or God will kill them bargaining with God. He's at the poker table. He's just put all his chips in with the Lord. It's disturbing that he's hoping that he's going to get to see men and women and children, a whole city wiped out by God. It's perverse. He's in a dark, dark place. And so God had to get his attention because God still wants to show mercy to Jonah. As much as we might look at this and go, like, this guy's lost. God still wants to reach him. And so he, he wants to discipline him. And don't miss that when you look at the book of Jonah, I think people can immediately look and say, oh, it's all about Nineveh repenting and how awesome that was. It's not, the book is not so much about Nineveh, God showing mercy to Nineveh. That's like a little part of the story. The story is about God showing mercy to Jonah. That's what the book is about. That's the thing that we have to take on for ourselves. And so God's trying to get his attention. In his mercy, he's trying to discipline him and bring him back to a good place. So there's a whole thing with the plant in verse 6. And um, we'll come back to that in a moment. But in verse 8, this plant that God gives him, when the sun rose, God appointed a hardship to come to him, which is this scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Now God's using these object lessons of the plant and, and the wind, and uh, in, a, in a moment, the worm. And then, verse 9, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, we'll come back to that. And he answered him, yes, I should be angry, angry enough to die. Twice he uses this word, I'm burning, I'm furious. Now, this is a conversation with the God of the universe that he's having. God's pressing him to see just how far he's descended, and it's not good. I've seen this too many times in in the 28 years that I've been in pastoral work, 
too many times with people that were once active in the church, professing faith in Christ and living for Him. And then when things don't go their way, God gets blamed and you just watch one decision after another and the person spirals down and away and out of the picture. I want to go to that place. You know, if Jonah were a songwriter, at this moment, I mean, he's such a dark place, he would write a dirge right here. He'd write a dirge. He'd write a lament that was so sad, it had no resolution. And when, when you, if, there's, if you've ever heard a song like that with no resolution, just sad, it's just sad, it just takes you to a dark place. I mean, no one wants to listen to a song like that. In fact, the uh, esteemed Canadian theologian, Joni Mitchell, said uh, you could write a song about some kind of emotional problem you're having, but it would not be a good song in my eyes until it went through a period of sensitivity to a moment of clarity. Without that moment of clarity to contribute to the song, love this, it's just complaining. It's just complaining. And complaint that leads to a dark and lonely place. And yet even here, with the question God asks, we can see His relentless mercy reaching out to Jonah. And if you ask yourself this question, am I spiraling down into a dark place? If the answer to that is yes, then you have to stop that spiral. You have to turn that round, around. You need what Joni Mitchell says is that moment of clarity. And that may come by simply asking this fourth question. Do I think I deserve the good things that I receive from God? So many of us think that we're entitled to all the things that we have. Oh, we worked for this. I worked for this. Look how hard I I work for this. Look how talented I am. That's why I have the things that I have. Well, Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. He, like me, he was a professional preacher of God's Word. And he may have thought that he was deserving of special treatment because of that status before the Lord. He certainly believed that Israel as a nation deserves special treatment. And so God in His mercy provided Jonah with a a blessing. We come back now to verse 6, and the Lord appointed this plant. His hut wasn't getting the job done, so God appoints this plant, and He made the plant come up over Jonah, that it would be a shade over his head, this is verse 6, to save him from his discomfort. By the way, that word discomfort, literally, original language, to save him from his evil to save him from his evil, which was self-inflicted and had way more to do. God's providing him shade, but his angst, his discomfort, the evil that was inside of him has way more to do with his own angst over how God is doing things and much less to do how, with how hot the sun was. And so verse 6, this is the way it goes, right? This is the way it goes when God blesses us. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
when God's pouring it out in our lives, when all the blessings are flowing. Isn't it awesome how good God is? How much He pours out in our lives when you're healthy, when you have money, when there's no drama in your life. My God is an awesome God. Right? We're just like all into it. How awesome is God? Look how blessed I am. How much harder it is to sing the song when the blessings aren't coming. It's so easy to love God and appreciate Him when He's pouring it out in good ways in our lives. So Jonah, shallow, shallow, as shallow as I can be. Exceedingly glad because of the plant, verse 7, but God's still trying to get him to a good place. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. If there are any people at any time that could understand worms attacking plants, it would be the people of Barry right now. And I looked in all the commentaries, they can't tell you what kind of worm it was, but I know it was the gypsy moth caterpillar. That's the worm. That's the little devil that's in here eating this plant. And so God takes the blessing away. The worm eats the plant. The sun's now beating down on his head. God takes the blessing away. Listen, he takes it away in his mercy. He's trying to get Jonah to a better place. He's leading him to an understanding of what he's thinking and believing. He's challenging him about where he's ended up. He's trying to get him to check his attitude. Because Jonah thinks he deserves what he deserves. He thinks Israel deserves what they deserve. And again, earlier in in verse 2, we saw this. I said we'd come back to it. We saw that God is, among other things, He's gracious and merciful. And this is the really common definition that's given of those two words. So we distinguish them in the Scripture, that grace is getting what you do not deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so all that you have that is good in your life, all of it is an undeserved blessing from God. You need to get it out of your head right now that there's some kind of quid pro quo with God. Because there isn't. We can't be glad when the plant is shading us and and bitter when it's not. You know, Jonah, Jonah knew about Job. We know about Job. We remember that great verse in Job 121 after the first of the great calamities befall him. And he says... The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Okay, listen, if you're going to come to church, you're going to talk out loud, okay, right? If you don't just want to mutter to yourself, just stay home and watch it on the live stream. But when you're here, I'm going to give you another run at that, Job 121. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's going to keep us, if we just remember this principle, if Jonah had only remembered this principle, that's, that would have kept him from thinking that God ought to be doing things his way. All right, here's the last question. It's going to help us. Do I realize that God is reaching out to me? He's reaching out to me in mercy. The Lord asked Jonah two identical questions in verse 4 and 9. Do you do well to be angry? 
Is your anger rightly placed? And of course, we understand that he's asking this question. The answer, of course, is no. And God makes the point in verse 10, you pity the plant. He's really pitying himself. It's not so much about the plant. You pity the plant that you had, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You're so fixated on the temporary blessings in your own life. What you think you deserve as a believer, what you think you deserve as a prophet, not realizing that these are all grace gifts to you. If Jonah were a child, and he is, he's the child of the father, but if Jonah were a child, we'd say that, 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 that he's a petulant little spoiled brat. No one likes petulant little spoiled brats. No one does. If parents were honest, they'd even admit they don't like their own petulant little spoiled brats. But that's the way we often act toward God when we think we deserve things. And yet God keeps reaching out, relentlessly showing us His mercy. God wants Jonah to get to a better place. God wants us to get to a better place. Jonah needs to understand who God is and why God loves, yes, the Ninevites. Jonah wants God to be vengeful and angry. But he doesn't realize it's the same mercy. The same mercy that saved him is the same mercy that's going to save the Ninevites. And so God says to him, and this, this is incredible, but this is how the book ends. It, it ends with God saying, should I not pity Nineveh? This, we have this big city. It has a, a population of more than 120,000 people. They don't know their right hand. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. Apparently, neither do I. In other words, they don't have the moral bearing that you have. They don't have the advantage of the revelation of God that's shown you the moral standard. They don't have an understanding of salvation. The question is just hanging in the air. We, we don't know the response. We don't know how... Jonah reacts to this. We don't know what he does next. The question hangs in the air for Jonah because God wants it to hang in the air for you and me. He wants us to think about whether or not we're the petulant little spoiled brat who thinks they deserve everything. And so this is where it rests an uncomfortable moment, not just for Jonah, but for you and me. We think about what's at stake here. Do I have compassion for the lost? Do I have a heart, God's heart, for those who don't know Christ, who haven't heard the gospel? Well, let me ask it, let me ask it a different way, because we, we can't deny that what, another thing that's going on here, another kind of like subtext to this whole thing is that there's racial prejudice involved in how Jonah feels. There's racial prejudice in Jonah's reluctance to go. 
There's racial prejudice when he finally does go and preaches an inadequate message. There's racial prejudice in his disgust that God didn't judge them, but relented instead. Race is a big issue right now. And all I want to say about it is it just shouldn't be for Christians. It just shouldn't be. I have no category. I have no way of understanding that someone who's a professing Christian could harbor prejudice of any kind toward anyone. James wrote in his short book, he, he, he said, show no partiality. None. It's such a clear matter of, the, of, of Scripture, and it, it could only be ignorance of the Word of God that would lead a professing Christian to be in any way partial or prejudiced. In fact, let's, let's use God's very words here to press this point a little bit more. He says, should I Should not I pity, verse 11, should not I pity Nineveh? And if you're carrying the New International Version, you're going to see, should I not be concerned for? The word is really best translated, should I not have compassion for? That's what it is. Jonah, shouldn't I have compassion for the Ninevites? So let's use that phrase. Should I not have compassion for? Should I not have compassion for the indigenous peoples of this country and all the horrors they've endured? Should I not have compassion for Muslims who simply want to go out for an evening stroll? Should I not have compassion for black and Asian Canadians Should I not have compassion for Hindus? Should I not have compassion for those who have no faith, no religion, who hate God, who are atheists? I mean, doesn't this really start to get right down to it for us? Jonah felt like he and Israel were better than everyone and that they did not deserve the mercy of God. Jonah hated the Ninevites, and he hated how they affected Israel's well-being. That's it, isn't it? People of other races, people of other religions, we're concerned that they're going to upset our well-being. This is Jonah's sin. Should I not have compassion on them, God says? Should I not have compassion for the homeless, for the poor? Should I not have compassion for the aged, for the disabled and the infirmed? God says to us, should I not have compassion on anyone who's different than you? Do you have less mercy for anyone than what you yourself think that you deserve? Even then, 
even if you're in that horrible place, the message of Jonah is God's still reaching out. God's still reaching out with His relentless mercy towards you. So that's the five questions. Let me just close with this. We have this this perception of God, this, this constraining perception of God that's so unhealthy that somehow God is just sitting there, as we said before, wanting to judge. We have a greater understanding of His harshness rather than His love. Dane Ortland, who wrote this amazing book, Gentle and Lowly, I'd recommend it, said, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. Again, we see God as this harsh judge on ourselves and on others. We are factories, he says, of fresh resistances to Christ's love. And then it switches, but with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach Him. And that is to say, He's inclined to love. God is inclined to pour out grace. God is inclined to be merciful toward us. It was true for the sailors on the ship. It was true for the residents of Nineveh. It was true for the nation of Israel and for the prophet Jonah. It's true for your neighbors. Every person in Barrie and Simcoe County and across this country and indeed around the world. It's true for you and it's true for me. God is pursuing us with His relentless mercy because He is the God of second, third, fourth, fifth and many more chances. Let me pray for us. Father, you are um, so very kind to us and you have showered us with your mercy. It's hard for us to see it at times and that's our fault. God, whatever obstacles might be in the way and whatever people that might be here who are spiraling down or in a dark place already who are believing wrong things, God, I pray that for any of us who are hearing this message today, there would be repentance, God, that we would agree with you and turn from our way of thinking and receive this mercy that you're offering to us now. God, thank you for your patience, your long-suffering, your steadfast love toward us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes it possible for us to even pray this prayer. And we pray all these things in his strong name. Amen. Amen.